Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Mark Eldridge. Mark is a legal technology and legal operations veteran and is director of legal operations at Gardent Health. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you. Alex, for having me out. This is a really great opportunity to sit here and uh, talk to you about kind of my journey and how I got here. Well, let's start at the beginning of that journey, Mark. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Arlington, Texas. So just a suburb outside of Dallas and Fort Worth. And you decided to study business at the University of Texas. What was behind that decision? It's a great question. Easier degree than engineering. <laughs> I started on the engineering path and um quickly realized that differential equations was not for me. So I decided to uh, switch over to business, which is a much easier path and a much faster path to get out of college. I love the honesty in the answer, Mark. <laughs> we don't get that every day. You then went on to study a master's in computer and information system security. So you obviously, the kind of, you hadn't got engineering completely out of your system. What was behind that? No, I was always been uh, really fascinated by computers and at a young age, I built my first one when I was 12. This is old school 486 PC. Back then it was a lot harder to build computers because we didn't have all the plug and play parts we do now. So it really gave me the kind of hands-on aspects of understanding computers, how they worked, peripherals, the hardware, software, really all the layers to it. And um, always loved doing it. And then really when I got into kind of building my career out, this tech piece is always calling me. Always was kind of part of what it, something I wanted to do. So I figured I should probably get a degree in it because I've been doing it for a long time. And people always asked, why are you the tech guy, but you don't have a tech degree? So I figured I'd just check that box and solve that problem. You mentioned a few moments ago, you were in a little bit of a rush to get out of college as quickly as you could. What was your first job then after graduating? So actually I uh, worked full time while I was in my undergrad and I worked for a forensics lab, Armstrong Forensics. And really I got the job by happenstance. It was a friend of my father's started a laboratory. He was a kind of a pioneer in the industry of arson investigations and, and chemical analysis, FID, EID stuff, mass spectrometry. So he'd been in that space for, man, I think 30 years at that point. So he was really kind of a pioneer and got a job just working there, just doing odds and ends, saying yes to whatever he told me to say yes to. But it opened up a lot of great doors being in the world of forensics. And that's how I got into computer forensics, to be honest. It was a emerging field in the 90s. At the time, a lot of talk to anybody from police or law enforcement, they'll tell you that <laughs> the guys who got into computer forensics in the early days were the ones who were the best at basically solitaire or the ones who do a little bit of coding, the ones that get the demand prompts, because there was no there was no formal education. There's no background at the time back in the 90s. So guys like me, it was wide open. We could go in there and really pursue whatever we wanted to. So I really took it to heart and started studying it, self-taught. And that really segued itself to McAfee, antivirus software company. They had just been really kind of taken to the, the woodshed on some e-discovery, on some patent litigation, and they didn't want it to happen again. So they wanted someone to come in and basically overhaul and build them a forensics e-discovery program. So this was 2008. So this was, I mean, for those of us who've been around long enough, this is the early days of 
e-discovery platforms and software. We had the autonomies, we had some clear wheels out there. We had iDocs, iManage, all these guys out there, all trying to compete in this space and build the one e-discovery solution to rule them all kind of mentality. But guys like me had to come in and basically make sense of all of it and really get it to work for our attorneys. So they brought me in and I built them out a system, a very robust hybrid system that was hosted internally in our data centers out in Plano, Texas, but was document reviewed out of India. So using LPOs out of India. So at the time, you know, most councils still wanted to keep the Docker view in house. As we know, that gets expensive. So we pushed for the hybrid environment and decided to push it to India where we get much, much cheaper rates and also had around the clock service because we had a lot of documents to produce. So we really need the scalability that an LPO could offer. And that's an amazing kind of career trajectory. And before kind of delving into the experience in the early days of e-discovery, can you maybe highlight any skills from that early career experience at Armstrong working as a forensic technician that have proven particularly useful in your kind of subsequent career in e-discovery or in legal operations? Sure. I look back on it very fondly because there's, to your point, there's a lot of of stuff you can learn really early on in your career that can be crucial to, I think, how how your career goes, your treasury goes. Some of the things being just document production, taking notes, being diligent, because I worked at Armstrong for eight years. And so during that time, I saw some of my cases in my early days kind of circle back and I had to talk about them later on, get questions from law enforcement personnel, get questions from even to civil cases. And you think you're going to remember this case, but you're not. There's hundreds of them. There's thousands of them. So you got to look at your notes. And a lot of times I read them and go, yeah, I don't remember anything about this. Whatever I wrote is what happened. But luckily, over time, you see that note-taking is huge. Take as many notes as possible, photos, everything, because you're not going to remember later on. <laughs> and the older I get, the more I forget. So I really got to take more and more notes. So I mean, just being diligent, writing things down, having good process and procedures is a huge piece of it. That's something you really learn in laboratories. Repeatable processes that are written down because it helps to reduce errors. That's a big piece of it. And really that transition, a lot of that transition to e-discovery for me. Kind of the same thing, process, procedure, because in e-discovery, a lot of what we're trying to do is show repeatability, show consistency, show that we're not missing anything. And also at the same time, increase efficiency because we have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions even of pages and documents to go through. And if we can find a way to, by moving tags around or by renaming tags a certain way or grouping documents together, we can find a way to shave seconds off of every document. Adds up. It's huge. It's really huge. And Mark, how true to life would you say the the kind of TV interpretation of the work you were doing in forensics was, the kind of CSI perspective on solving a case? Is it, is it an accurate uh, reflection of, of what your life was at that time? You were bringing up a great long-running <laughs> argument in my household because my wife loves the, uh, the murder mystery, the CSIs, all that stuff, and I can't watch it. And reason being, they're getting better, I'll put it that way. They're getting better and more true to form in terms of kind of process and procedure and how things are handled. Yeah, but the big thing they're always missing is that dramatization piece. They always make it seem like there's one person who knows like weapons forensics and also knows like computer forensics and also knows how to do like mass spectrometry. It's like, no, there's not one person to do all that stuff. Like that person doesn't exist. It's dozens and dozens of people in numerous different fields of forensics all handling these things. And it doesn't take minutes. It takes months. <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight. It, but I get it. it. It's a show. They got to make it move fast. 
Yeah, that dramatic license. Uh, and I suppose that's part and parcel of making a TV show or a movie. But the nature of these things, as you say, is that there's a team behind it. There's a multitude of different experts, probably not, not dissimilar to a successful legal department, legal ops function. It's rarely yeah. down one superstar. And in my experience, certainly the same is true here at Brightfact. Oh, exactly. Same with law firms. Law firms got different, many different departments and, and groups handling many different types of law. It's the way it's got to be. And I'm interested to understand, did you have any mentors at that point in your career, whether that eight years at Armstrong or your early days at McAfee, that, that played a really important role in your development? Yes, definitely. And Dr. Andrew Armstrong was a, was a huge piece for me. He was really big, taught me some great lessons around when it comes to doing forensics. Don't extend yourself beyond your knowledge. What he really meant by that was, it's okay to say you don't know something. It's better to do that than to tell a lie. Because especially when you're on the witness stand or you're in a deposition, just stick to the facts. If you get put in a corner and you don't know the answer, just say, I don't know. That's fine. Better do that than be <laughs> held in contempt of court or <laughs> get caught in perjury. So that was a huge thing for me is that's really transitioned well to dealing with lawyers throughout my entire career is stand your ground, stick to the facts. And if you don't know, just tell them, hey, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. I'll find out for you. Because lawyers, I feel like, especially litigators, I don't know about you, but uh I feel like that once they kind of smell that you're faltering, it's almost like blood in the water with sharks and they're going to keep feasting on you until you, you really start to fall apart. And uh, I feel like litigators really know are pretty good at knowing when someone's telling the truth and they respect you for it. I think it's great advice in any walk of life under promise and over deliver. And as you say, stick to the facts and it is all to say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And I think, yeah, sometimes where people at an earlier stage in their career feel like they have to represent that they have the answer to everything which is a dangerous path and particularly if you're dealing with a, a feisty litigator as, as you pointed out so you're obviously immersed in the world of e-discovery at a really early stage in its development i i remember well the law firm i was working in was heavily involved in the madoff litigation and e-discovery mm. use given the scale of that litigation in a massive way and it was one of the first real extensive use cases for it at the time in our firm and it just transformed the whole process so at McAfee what were those kind of step changes that you saw in how paper discovery to kind of e-discovery projects evolved over the time that you were there it was a great time because we just were seeing the transition you know to your point from like paper to electronic records we still had cases are kind of a little bit of both but at that time, we kind of had an idea of how to deal with paper to some extent. It was like, just get tons of rooms and stack the boxes up and lock the associates in there and make them go through it until they find the hot docs. We kind of had an understanding how to handle those things a little bit. But the electronic piece was just, the data sprawl was massive at the time. And looking back on it now, we kind of laugh at it because it really wasn't that much, but we didn't have a way of handling it. Email exchange environment was exploding in terms of the amount of storage they could have rather quickly and we didn't have ways to parse through it easily or produce it easily. So that was a, a, a big issue for us that we had to conquer through getting the right kind of platform in place. And of course, I don't know if you remember the old days, but tiffing documents, turning them into images, Bates labeling them. I mean, we had errors all the time, failing all the time, but it was great because it really, how do I put this? It really got your hands dirty. You really got in there and had to deal with all the issues and all the errors and really learned why these things didn't work well and learns in, ins and outs of all the software pieces, the tiffing engines, the production engines, the highlighting engines, everything other piece of it. And by doing that, though, really give you a great respect for how complex the process is and also how to then make it better. We talk a lot about in forensics now, this also old timers, I guess, about how there's push button forensics and push button new discovery. 
because the processes have gotten so good now that it's pretty easy. Relativity and a lot of the big programs have kind of solved a lot of the big issues. They make it so visually intensive and so easy to review documents that it's just kind of seamless. But those of us who've lived the, the old days, well, the ones who really can respect these systems and how awesome they are. And of course, you hear newer lawyers still complain about these systems and say they're not good enough, they're not fast enough. I'm like, well, should have been here 15 years ago. Right? It was horrible then. But it gives me a kind of great insight, I'll put it that way. I spent some time working in a, a lit litigation department where there was still some paper discovery being done. And that certainly was slow and painful and incredibly inefficient. And oh, yeah. Uh, Maybe the old term box carring. We just send paper <laughs> documents until we just drown them in it. <laughs> yeah, I was on the receiving end of some of that. And <laughs> like, I think what, what was probably necessary as well was that rate of innovation that you're talked about in terms of where the technology is today, given the kind of explosion in the data set that needs to be analyzed in just the use and the quantity of data that, that actually can be the subject of discovery exercise. It was necessary for the tools to evolve as rapidly as they did, presumably. Oh, yeah. After your time at McAvee, were attracted to join FlowServe. What, what led to that decision? So even my, my old McAfee counterparts listen to this, they'll know this is true, is uh, we worked 100-hour weeks for years. McAfee was dealing with what many of them in that space were dealing with, which was software patent trolls. They were being sued nonstop. These companies that would buy up old patents and they would just sue everybody they can in space and they would just bury in litigation. I would call it kind of modern-day extortion. It was really just kind of racketeering to some extent. They were just shaking every company down they could and taking advantage of our, of our, you know, unfortunately kind of generalized software patents that we had at the time from the 90s. So we were just nonstop producing documents. At the time, I think we we're producing a couple billion pages a year, which was insane for the 2008, 2009, 2010. No, no one really did that, especially not in-house. And uh, I just got burned out, to be honest, doing too much of it. You know, I'd been already kind of transitioned myself a little bit from doing not just e-discovery at McAfee, but also we uh, implemented Serengeti, which is now Thompson Reuters Legal Tracker. So I think it's one of the first really e-billing systems out there. And I helped them do that, I helped take the legal team at that time totally paperless, which was pretty pretty ahead of the game. If we're doing that 12 years ago, we went paperless, which was really cutting edge. We were already doing hybrid e-discovery environment, had our own on-premise system. Using e-billing, we were really kind of tiptoeing in the waters I would call legal operations. We just didn't call it that at the time. Really looked at it as making legal more efficient because we had to, because we were dealing with so many firms suing us, so many plaintiffs suing us, that we had to be as efficient as possible and really good stewards of the company's money. So kind of got to the end and said, what? I kind of want to throttle back a little bit and kind of want to start a family and get my life back. So... I love this quote from the, at the time, Rob Roberts was the VP of litigation at FlowServe. And he said, he goes, I want a racehorse that's tired of running the race. I was like, well, that'd be a good description for me. He's like, I want to bring somebody in who knows how to do the, the coolest, greatest stuff. Who's been at the tip of the spear, but wants to do it somewhere else a little slower. I was like, all right, perfect. So I came in and they kind of gave me just free reign to chase what I wanted to. Originally, they brought me in for e-discovery, but their e-discovery problems were very small compared to McAfee's. So it didn't take me long to get those under wraps and get a nice system in place, a nice process in place. And after that, I worked on the investigations side to get their team kind of lined up. And after that, went on to records management. So I handled records management for the entire company. So I had to build out a records retention policy, schedule, working with all the system administrators to make sure things are kept as long as it should be. And more importantly, destroyed when they should be. Because legal liability is a huge piece. And then after that, e-billing, and then 
CLM, contract lifecycle management. So, I mean, you name it, inside legal ops, I did it over the course of 10 years at FlowServe. It was great because it was really, there was no preconceived notions how anything should go. It was really, I was allowed to just chase my passion. And Mark, I think what you touched on there is the trend I've kind of been seeing from the conversations I've had on the podcast, which is there can be a certain point of entry into kind of building out a legal ops function. And it sounds like for you, it was you were brought in as the e-discovery expert to kind of build that capability and that function. And then having done that really well, you could then move on to other projects and other initiatives. How did you kind of think about building your skill set as an e-discovery expert? Obviously, you'd had some prior experience in the kind of e-billing matter management space at McAfee with, as well. How did you think about building that broader skill set as you took on these projects that were, in some instance, instances, presumably very different in nature? How did you think about doing that? I think this maybe this is where the undergrad in business came in. It really, I thought about everything in terms of how the business viewed us. So I had the, the privilege of really kind of witnessing the business side of legal at McAfee and seeing just how much things cost, the ROI, because these patent trolls, they sued us so often that it became, it was just a numbers game. It was like, all right, how much do I think you're going to settle for? How much do I think it's going to cost me to fight you? We got to find our point that we say, hey, I'm willing to settle for this much because it's going to cost me more than that to even fight you, right? It's all ROI. So by doing that, I really got a lot of chances to sit down with the business and find out what's their risk threshold, how much they want to fight things, how do they view legal also? And they're very, very open about it. Legal is a cost center, right? Inside a corporation, we cost money. And, but it is a necessary cost in many ways, but you got to justify that cost and show you're being really good stewards of that money and show them the value you're getting. Say, hey, yes, you could outsource all of legal to some firms, but promise you they're not going to have the best interest in your and <laughs> the outcome as we do because we actually work for you versus they it's just billable hours and also they're going to cost far more far more money they're probably going to take far longer because it's beneficial to them but anyways all that be said and really i kind of looked at it the rest of legal that way I said hey how do we make ourselves as efficient as possible how do we get our costs down as much as possible i took some of the principles from e-discovery and applied it to other aspects of legal how do i make sure that my Legal associates have all the things they need. How do I reduce the noise? Because a lot of times in discovery, you don't want to get a lot of documents that are nowhere near relevant, right? You really want your tier two, tier three reviewers to have stuff that's been kind of filtered through. So now they're getting the stuff that's really close to being the good stuff. So that way you're not wasting their time. I kind of viewed that same way across everything else. My contract reviewers, hey, contract reviewers, I want a system that can go through and automatically identify the stuff that really matters. Limitation of liability, identification, venue of law. Let me go ahead and have find a system that can search through it, highlight those pieces, bring those to the forefront. So that way you're spending your time on the big pieces and you're not spending your time reading through schematics or drawings or other more business terms. I want you to focus on legal terms. The whole idea is to get them to be more efficient and more useful. So that way it costs less. And also, this is kind of my spiel to many of my people, lawyers, paralegals, all of them have very good skill sets, and those skill sets are law. That's where I need you folks in your time. I need to reduce the noise in the background and reduce the time that takes away from your passion, away from your creativity. Because you're spending 40% of your time having to like approve invoices or deal with HR stuff or other kind of administrative functions. That's pulling away from what you could be spending on tackling the really big problems, putting more time into a deposition, putting more time into a big joint venture deal, looking around corners and seeing problems. I need you spending time on that, not this other stuff that's kind of noise, as I would call it.
So that's kind of the way I approach it. And it's kind of to the same philosophy to each group of legal mm -hmm. applied to contracts, applied to our billing and invoicing, vendor management, applied it to our investigations, just each piece of it, kind of the same philosophy. It's how we make ourselves more efficient, how we make ourselves work faster and better. How do we reduce the noise? You've touched on such an important topic at the moment in the current kind of macro level environment where it's obviously we're either in a recession or there's a recession looming. It is a challenging environment for organizations. There's an increased focus on efficiency. And I think for legal operations leaders, having that kind of ruthless prioritization on what is going to have the biggest impact. How do I get the most out of our team? How do I take things off their desk? How do I ensure we're prioritizing the projects with the greatest ROI that is going to move the dial the most, that is, is most impactful for the overall business? I think legal ops leaders, I think really at the moment need to have that focus. And, and I think the most successful ones have always had it like yourself. And I'm interested to understand how you kind of went about building the relationship with the legal leadership group to kind of get the buy-in for those initiatives was it kind of mark you a free reign you pick the things that are going to be most impactful or how did you think about working with that the general counsel with legal leadership to to build out that roadmap of things that were going to move the dial to the greatest degree that's a great question and i'll say this to those who are just getting into legal operations this is a great time because I think there's a lot more general counsels and legal leadership who are open to legal operations. They're open to, I would say, overhaul or 2.0, legal 2.0. Because many years ago, if you're a non-attorney, you're kind of on the outside of legal leadership. Legal leadership was very much locked into just attorneys. And it was typically heads of litigation, heads of employment law, your securities counsels, those kinds of people. To your point, it, it took a while to really sell them on the idea of letting an outsider come in, a non-attorney come in, and make things better because they thought that only lawyers would know how to make this better. They didn't think that someone else could make this better. But really, it, it kind of makes sense to see things in a different light. You must come from a different background. So someone coming in from the outside who has business background and e-discovery and technology background, right? I had to sell them on this idea of saying, hey, you know, let me show you the numbers. This is how long it takes for someone to review a contract currently. And here's all the steps. And Lawyers, like many other people, are very visual. So really, when you put it up in a giant workflow diagram and show them, here's all the steps that it takes to review a contract. And then you start highlighting pieces going, I can automate this piece, right? Our people are spending two to three hours just following up with other groups on where they stand on this contract. If I take this out of that, they get three hours back. What about this piece here? Just tracking versions. If I have a system do that for you, that removes a whole bunch. It also removes issues with losing the most recent version of the document. We don't have to sign a copy reduces liability, reduces just repetition. But you show them all these little pieces they can pull out and you say, hey, if we do it my way, I can get your people down from contract review that takes nine to 10 days, business days, down to three to five, right? That's time back in your pocket they can spend on something else. And of course, there's always, you got to prove it to them. You can kind of throw it up there in a the visual, but eventually you actually got to go out and make dinner and, and serve it to them. So, but I had to do this quite a few times. Same with e-billing. They'd say, oh, this is not worth it. I don't want to dive in my vendor's bills. I want to dive in my firm's bills. I know they're not overbilling me. Okay. You got to dive in there and say, hey, it's kind of unusual that they're always rounding the same three numbers. Like no one ever always has their bills at 0.5 or 1. If they're actually doing it accurately, our account should be all the numbers in between. So you show them this over a long enough period of time and say, hey, they're overcharging you. They're rounding up. No one rounds down. They're rounding up. They're overcharging you. Go ahead and get market analysis and show them that there's other firms that are willing to do the same work for cheaper. Show them that if we move to 
different geographic locations, get firms in different parts of the country. It can be cheaper. But you got to show this to them and show them that there's big savings. And to your point, we're always in a recession or near recession. So I always try to take advantage of when a budget's starting to get tight to say, hey, here's this chance. Our budget's tight. This is an easy way that we can free up some funds and go out and go do the fun projects or go out and get the fun toys. So I was kind of keep, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about this, but I like to keep a nice list of great ideas that didn't work at the time and then bring them up with the right kind of tragedy. <laughs> so, hey, remember the idea I had two years ago? Now's the time to do it. That's fascinating. And looking back now on your time at FlowServe, hindsight is twenty twenty. What project would you say had the biggest impact? I would say probably e-billing. I'd say that because we had enough time to really implement it and went through, we implemented it, got it up and running, and then we had a long enough time with it that we actually went back in and kind of did a 2.0. Because you don't know what you don't know. You put a system in, you think you want these things, and later on, through metrics, you find out that, hey, this is, you know, it's kind of like looking at a puzzle. You got a bunch of pieces and you got them laid out and you say, okay, now I understand what the rest of the picture should look like. Now I need to fill in those other puzzle pieces. But you can't know what it should look like until you just get something out there. It's kind of like, I, I say, it's like most people start a puzzle with the edges. That's kind of like the first version of your system. It gets the edges out there. And now you say, okay, now I know my world and my boundaries to some extent. Now I got to fill in a lot of the rest of the content. So that's kind of like when you get the chance to go back and look at it again and say, hey, I want to track this now. I want to track that. And some of the things we really focused on in our 2.0 was you know understanding what the business cared about more because a business yeah you can show them what things cost but at the end of the day they know you cost a lot of money and they don't want to know that what they really want to know is what they're getting for their money that's really that next level so showing them and say hey yes this matter cost a million dollars last year but their the claimed amount was 30 million we put down a reserve of let's say three and a half or four what it might be but we actually think our range of potential liability is anywhere from half a million to could be 30 million, but showing them, Hey, this is your range of what it could be on your worst day without us. It could be $30 million on the best day possible, where we're just really humming on this thing. It could be half a million. So that shows your value. You're saying, yeah, it cost me a million and I had to dedicate personnel to it, but I'm saving you from potentially a $30 million payday. That really resonates with them. Now they're going, Oh, now I get what I'm spending my money on. Now I know why you're here and tracking status updates and tracking the particulars of the case makes it easy for legal leadership to kind of go in there and quickly say, hey, yeah, I know what's going on in this case. I don't need to have 13 different team meetings to get updates on every case. I can go into a system where all this is tracked and I can pull up the case details quickly and figure it out and know where we're standing. So that one was one of the biggest impacts. The one after that thing would probably be contract lifecycle management. That's another huge one. They're two biggies, all right. <laughs> and, yeah, hot topics now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, on e-billing, obviously something close to my heart, given what we do here at Bride Flag. I think what you touched on is so true that there is a kind of a journey a legal department needs to go on a kind of day one where there's you're in a very immature state to fast forward 12 months, two years where you want to get to and you can't do it all at once. You, you kind of have to have a very intentional approach in how you build your strategy, prioritize the things that are going to have the biggest impact in the short term, like getting visibility, getting some base level controls in place. And then in the longer term, what having a system and a process enables and having a data set enables is exactly what you spoke about, which is ultimately enabling the legal department to become more data-driven, equipping your lawyers with a data set and truthfully probably a skill set they didn't have before, which is speaking the language of the business about quantifying their value in a way that 
many legal departments still do not do and probably get under undervalued and underappreciated as a result of that. And that is, is truly transformative. And to a point you made earlier on, it is the role that you can play, have it coming from a very different background, from a business background, from a technology background. And that's just something that sometimes doesn't come easily to lawyers, in my experience. I don't know if you agree with that. Oh, 100% agree with that. I think in legal, we need to be more open-minded about changing the way we do things. Legal operations, I think, is a great example of that. Be open to letting someone who's an outsider come in. Be open to having someone who doesn't have a background in law come in and look at things. Because legal operations is really just business operations in a lot of ways, just with an understanding of how legal teams work and how the law works. So legal leadership is much better now, I think, in the industry than it has been in the past. Removing the curtains, removing the walls, kind of taking away this kind of black box of money. I think it's beneficial and legal to be transparent with how the money is spent, how it's being used, because to be honest, it's a great story to be told. There's a lot of liability that legal groups handle. I think we should really kind of put them on our sleeve and wear it and show it with pride and say, yeah, man, there's a lot of dangers out there. And we're not going to protect you from all of them, but we're going to protect you from a lot of them. And we can definitely soften the blow. We can definitely help the business mature, and we can definitely enable the business in a lot of ways. Because one of the things I try to tell contracts teams is, hey, let's change the narrative from us being the group of no to the group of maybe, let me find you a better way to get there. Because they just want to see us, you know, legal is like, oh, another roadblock. Uh, legal gets their hands in the contract and they're going to say no to everything. It's like, well, the day it's a business decision. We need to tell them, hey, if you want to agree to some crazy risky stuff, that's on you. You got to wear it. But let me find you a way to get to where you want to go in a way that's a little safer. And I think it's helpful to be kind of business enablers to be the land of no. I couldn't agree more. And you recently joined Guardant Health to lead legal operations how, if at all, has your approach changed leading a legal operations function the second time around? Man, it's great, great question. So the benefit of being at Flowserve as long as I was and kind of just having the benefit of saying yes to so many things and having compounding wins over time is a lot of trust goes with that. People just trusted that I knew what was best. So the early days where I had to put together so many PowerPoints and run so many numbers to prove that this was the idea, Towards the last couple of years, it, it flows everybody not do it anymore. They said, Mark knows best. Like, we'll just do it. It made it a lot easier. I had to go in there, to, you know, loaded for bear to every meeting, trying to prove my existence and prove why we're doing it. So coming to Garden, it's kind of stepping back to those old days where I'm trying to change a culture, trying to help them understand that legal ops is not here to take away jobs or make their job harder, right? To so show them that I'm actually here to help them get more resources. I'm here to make their jobs easier. And that's really my big push. So a lot of it is evangelizing. Me or the teams and telling them, I kind of have this spiel. I go into people's offices and ask them, all right, what is it that you really love about this job? Like what drives your passion? What fuels it? And everyone's different. Some people it's, hey, I really love diving into the big JV deals where we're really talking about some really cool stuff. We're talking about IP protection, IP sharing. I'm like, okay, now tell me what's the stuff that takes away from that time. Tell me the stuff that's annoying you. Tell me the stuff that's mundane. Tell me the stuff that you don't like doing that takes away from your ability to do those things. But it's really fascinating the things that people tell you. It ranges from, I got to respond to all these training issues, or I got to deal with all these crazy requests I get from the business. I have people inundating me with calls about where's this policy, or what do I do with doc retention? I write all these things down furiously, and I try to find ways to automate those pieces off or consolidate them to where these people, you know, because a lot of it I've found is people who don't deal with legal very often don't know to talk to in legal. So the first person they find is the one they start emailing, calling. I think it's helpful to build processes, procedures to help people find information quickly and easily because it kind of helps reduce the noise and of our legal associates. 
you've touched on something there, Mark, that I was speaking to Stephanie Corey about recently, which is the importance of soft skills as a legal operations leader and the importance of communication and the importance of listening and like physically going into members of the legal team's office and sitting down with them and listening to what they love and equally what's causing them pain and that informing your plan, informing how you can help them. And I think that's probably one of the most fundamental things that sets the most successful people in this space apart is the ones that build relationships with that key group of stakeholders, the lawyers, and enables them to be more successful. Well, 100%. I think you, you nailed it, right? I think legal ops, I've made this joke many times, often as therapists, right? Like we have to sit down and say, hey, tell me your problems. Tell me what's going on. And with some people, it's easier than others, right? Sometimes you sit down in their office and they've been, they've been waiting for you to show up. They have the list. It's all written down. They're ready for it to hand it over to you and make their world a better place. And with some, you know, I think they are apprehensive for fear of job replacement, like their fear of being automated off or... And what I tell them is, I don't want to automate off anyone's job. I want to automate off the mundane. That's really what I want to do. Because I found there's always more legal work out there. Like it seems never ending. And especially a lot of legal groups have compliance as well. And compliance is never ending. And if you have these two really big monoliths you're trying to conquer, we need people. And I need to be really efficient with our resources so I can get things solved. So I tell them, you know, hey, just walk me through your day. And as they start walking me through their day, the things they say, oh, it's not that big a deal. I'm like, well, where are you tracking this at? Oh, on a spreadsheet. How much time do you spend a day on it? Oh, not that often. But you do like 50 of these a day, right? So that's 50 times you got to put this into a spreadsheet and there's like 30 different fields. I'm just doing the math. You probably spend half your day just tracking these requests. Well, yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, I probably do. Well, let me find a way to automate this piece, right? So you get a half of your day back. That's massive savings. I couldn't agree more. And the way I, I sometimes kind of Think about it as a, as a pyramid where you have the most mundane administrative routine work at the bottom of the pyramid and you're trying to automate mm-hmm. all that. And then you've probably got a layer just above that, which is stuff that could be sitting with an alternative service provider or, or a, a less costly resource. And then the top of the pyramid is, as you say, which is ever expanding, given the world we find ourselves in. That's where you want your in-house team spending their time on the more strategic mm-hmm. work. I suspect when you're having those conversations about what people love, no one said the administrative work and no one said the kind of standard NDA requests or the standard things that can consume so much time and really talented, expensive resources should not be focused on. So it's such a great approach, Mark. And I'm interested to understand how has that actually influenced the kind of core projects you're focused on now? What are the things you're most focused on now? Most focused around now is, to be honest, is dashboarding, automated metrics. So you know, with Garden, I've come in, you know, this is kind of my 2.0, right? So, you know, I wanted to come in and, you know, it flows through, I did it backwards. I kind of built the systems and then started to do dashboarding after the fact. What I've learned to that process is I got a lot more buy-in and a lot more praise on the dashboards than did on the day-to-day kind of building of the systems, right? And they go hand in hand. You can't have a good dashboard without good data flowing into it. But what I found is the dashboards really helped highlight where the bad data was and what was missing and also helped highlight our problem areas, our resource constraints. So kind of thinking 2.0 version, I was like, all right, I'm going to do a dashboard first. This will help the team understand their finances, where the money's being spent, how it's being spent, which is a big piece. And also it's going to help them with matter management. So helping them understand where are people spending the most amount of time. And because a lot of times as you do dashboards, you find out, hey, we have like 100 employment matters. The next question is going to be, 
what kind of employment matters? Well, with these, we don't really know. We're not tracking that. Okay, let's go track that. But by getting these kind of early dashboards in place, showing the very high-level metrics, you can get legal leadership buy-in pretty quick because they want to be able to prove to their business leaders that they're being wise of the money, that they're actually doing work, that they're handling it and they're showing value. But you got to kind of show that first, this is kind of my old saying, but I say that there's two different types of metrics. There's the look at me and all the work I'm doing metrics, right? And that's your like, hey, look at me requests we received or look at me matters we're handling or look at most litigations out there. And then there's the insightful business enabling metrics. That's the, hey, we had 32 different employment matters last quarter and 15 of them were this one location. There's probably some kind of training issue or maybe some bad culture over there. So that's really seeing around the corner and saying, hey, I'm seeing a trend. I'm seeing a problem. I'm going to go out and solve it for you, right? So it's no longer the, hey, look at me, I'm busy. It's now the, hey, I've identified issues and I'm solving them for you before you can ask me to. I think that's such great advice. And it kind of goes back to the point I made earlier about that maturity journey you need to go on. As you highlighted there, phase one is you need visibility. You need a dashboard. You need to understand mm -hmm. what's happening today. And while there will be the need for the kind of table stakes reporting your finance colleagues need, the accruals information, that is table stakes. Where you should be quickly trying to get towards is, as you said, that the kind of proactive, insightful data that can inform decisions like we're spending $2 million a year externally on employment law advice. Here's the business mm -hmm. case to hire an employment law team at a fraction of the cost and deliver the work more effectively. I think when you have that kind of next generation general counsel and legal leadership group that you mentioned and you've got the data to make those sorts of decisions that can just be so much more impactful than kind of ticking the box of as you say hey look here's how many contracts we reviewed or yes our accruals is working with which should just be happening 100 you've nailed it because that's really going to the point where now you're being really insightful now you're using the data to help you kind of see around a corner to solve problems quickly and use data to do it because that's why i tell a lot of our people is Hey, if we get these dashboards up and running, we start tracking these metrics. It helps me prove how busy you are. It helps me prove what value you're adding, which helps me get more resources. Mm -hmm. ROI calculator comes out and they start saying, well, legal's got a budget that's been going up every year. Why is that? We can have a story to tell, right? Yeah. We can tell our story and say, hey, here's all the work we're going and doing for you. And here's the problems we're solving. At the end of the day, it's all about resources. I couldn't agree more. And as you say, you need to understand how to use that data to tell the stories of what's happening and how you can improve it. I'm interested to get your perspective on the advice you'd give to somebody and maybe an earlier version of yourself who's at an early stage in their career working in e-discovery, who's considering a move into a broader legal operations role. Is there any kind of advice you'd give them as to how to go about doing that? Great question. So for me, it was kind of a natural linear progression. Being one of the, you know, I'd say early people need discovery. It just kind of made sense. I was kind of the right place, right time to kind of just transition into kind of legal tech and legal ops. For those looking to make the jump, I say do it. It's a fast growing field. The value is being seen now by legal leadership. You're seeing more and more head of legal operations reporting directly to general counsel. We're seeing a lot more VP roles open up around legal operations, which is great. In terms of how to do it, I think the best way to do it is sit down, sit down with your lawyers, with your paralegals and ask them, how can you make their day easier? How can you make their workload easier? And you can take a lot of the principles of, you know, what we've learned in discovery and apply it to other aspects of law, workflowing things, right? Lawyers don't think, you know, much like us techie people, they don't think in terms of steps and kind of linears and diagrams and workflows, right? 
they're much more creative minds because you know they have to deal in the world of arguments and debates and wordsmithing. So it's helpful to bring in that different perspective and say, hey, you can see a lawyer being overloaded and say, hey, walk me through what it takes for you to do whatever workflow you want to do. Review a contract, deal with a demand letter, deal with a you know, service of process and say, hey, just walk me through all the steps and just sit there and write it down for them. And then go back and look at it and say, hey, how can I improve this process? Could it be that we need to have one place to have all the documents stored for service of process? Right? We have one kind of repository. Could be that. Could it be the way that we track the metrics around it? Instead of having Excel spreadsheet on someone's computer, maybe we put in SharePoint. And maybe we put into a matter management system. But find ways to solve these pieces. And you keep doing that for them. They're going to make you legal ops leader eventually. They're going to pull you in. They're going to want you to be the person that solves their problems. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's that proactivity. It's that growth mindset. It's, it's applying kind of the core skill set that you have with a background in technology and process. And as you say, there are just so many opportunities out there and a really helpful community willing to share their knowledge Final question for me, unrelated to the world of, of legal operations. I know, Mark, you're really passionate about volunteering. How do you spend your time when you aren't building legal ops programs? Oh, man. Yeah, here's the, the great joke around the house. The kids stop asking me if I'm busy. They just say, Dad's always busy. Because I always fill my time with, you know, I do a lot of, uh, I do the STEM career day and STEM mentorship for the, my kids' school. So there's a lot of really awesome kids in the middle school that help out that are super into technology and it's awesome to watch them flourish and grow and kind of give them, you know, the right kind of nudges, the right kind of advice and the right kind of mentorship. Cause um, you know, when I was a young kid, there weren't many people on computers. Like you just didn't find them. Like not many people had PCs in their houses. So a lot of what I had learned was just by destroying it and rebuilding it over and over again and buying actual books or going to the library and getting coding books and figuring it out. So I really love that I can give back and help these kids, you know, into the world of STEM because right, it's a phenomenal world. That's one big piece of it. Another one is I'm on my local city council. So I am, I say technically a politician. I am truly a politician. I have to be elected, but I don't like to call myself politician comes all those negative connotations, but it's great because it helps, you know, I love to be part of my community and help out and really assist people. I like to be involved. You know, I like to keep our government in check to some extent by actually getting involved. So, and that's great. I love it. Also, I get a lot of complaints. My phone's always blowing up, always lots of text messages. We always joke that we can't do anything right, um, but we're trying. So really enjoy the aspect of it. And then also I have a nonprofit I started. A friend of mine was diagnosed with ALS two years ago. So he's a um, Marine Corps veteran. And so I said, hey man, what do you want to do? You know, life expectancy is three to five years. How do you want to spend the last days? And he said, he goes, I want to go out there and raise awareness. I want to go out there and help others. So we started a nonprofit. We went out there pounding the pavement, raising money. He spent quite a bit of time in front of local, state, and federal um, legislators, getting in front of them, trying to get, you know, get more dollars, more grants, more funds assigned to research, assigned to medications, and also just you know, helping people get the right equipment. It's amazing how much it can cost an ALS patient to have their house. You know, a lot of times you have to widen the hallways to make room for the wheelchairs, right? Because these aren't even normal wheelchairs. They're very large robotic wheelchairs. And also for the lifts, right? That lift them out of wheelchairs, their beds. All these pieces that go into it, it costs a lot of money. Medical equipment costs a lot of money. House remodeling costs a lot of money. Ramps cost a lot of money. You need a van to now get them around. That costs a lot of money. And fortunately, Nick and the has been, because he's a Marine Corps veteran, the VA has been very helpful. 
they've been very helpful in funding, very helpful in getting us a lot of the, the stuff we need. But not everyone's so fortunate. Not everyone's a veteran. Not everyone has access to these things, right? So a lot of what we're doing is helping acquire equipment from people that no longer need it, storing it, and giving it to people that are just now getting diagnosed ALS, and they're going to use it. So it's been a really great, really rewarding thing. It's one of those things that I wish I had more time for it, but all the other aspects of my life seem to take away from it. But it really does ground you, it centers you, and it makes you appreciate life every day. Well, Mark, I simply don't know where you find the time in the day. I don't sleep much. (laughs) (laughs) I I have two young daughters. I can certainly relate to the lack of sleep. But I firstly wish all politicians were as straight talking uh, as you are. Uh, (laughs) And secondly, what a remarkable friend you are and what a remarkable thing to do. And my father has MS, not as serious a condition, but I do know how underfunded some of these kind of relatively rare neurological conditions are uh, and how impactful it can be having a support network around you. And I'm sure your friend is hugely appreciative of everything you've been doing. Oh, thank you very much. It's amazing how little we know about these diseases, MS, ALS, how little we know about it. Is it familial? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? We have very little understanding of it. I mean, one of the biggest things they know is veterans are twice as likely to get it, but they don't know why. 95% of cases are, are not familial, they don't think, but they don't know. But so, so much of it is just they're pulling on threads trying to figure it out. I think very similar to MS. They're just trying to pull on threads and figure this thing out. I couldn't agree more. It remains a mystery and a lot of the treatments seem to be for other conditions rather than having been created specifically for MS. I'm by no means an expert, but I know firsthand the impact having a support network around you has. So uh, truly remarkable, Mark. And it's been an absolute privilege speaking with you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.